Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, municipalities and insurers are calling on the federal government to change the way they fund climate change disasters. Changes to Celebrate Ontario grants are leaving Supercrawl and Festival of Friends with less funding. And Ontario's top court is going through the legalities of last year's provincial intervention into Toronto's municipal election. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Municipalities, insurers and others are calling on the federal government now for changes in the way it is funding climate change disasters. Now, we've talked about this, well, since well, God knows when now, you know, about the things that are happening, the flood that's going on, the wildfires that are going on. And scientists will more often than not attribute this to climate change, the things that are happening around this earth. And the federal government has stepped up and said, okay, we're going to offer funds to help municipalities and communities recover after they've been affected by this. Well, right now the fund has matching dollars for provinces and territories, but there's a catch. The local municipalities got to kick in between 50 to 60% of the cost. And who's got that kind of money? John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, John. How are you doing today? Just great, Bill. Thanks. Good. Good to have you with us here today. Uh, this is, a, I guess, a sign of the times and, and a reflection of the times these days. I mean, we know the, what's happening with, with well, the, I guess, for lack of a better expression, natural disasters. Uh, and we've seen enough of them already this spring. Uh, the federal government says they're going to help, but that's a pretty hefty price tag they're putting on each municipality. Yeah, it's an impossible uh, threshold, uh, I think, for most municipalities to reach when they're you know they're scratching around with uh trying to keep uh budget increases uh you know at 2 and 3% uh very difficult and and of course a lot of communities would be excluded completely because the the spending threshold you have to have a project that costs at least i think 20 million dollars and you know some uh relief projects especially in smaller communities might might not come anywhere near that uh, level and so they simply wouldn't get any money and then the other problem is the the province also has a disaster relief fund but it also has some snags and and one of them is that to qualify uh, a community has to first spend three percent of their uh, taxable revenue so you take a city like Hamilton for to qualify for provincial money we, we'd have to spend roughly $50 million before we'd be eligible for the provincial plan. So it, it sounds like it's kind of a catch-22. There's, there's funds there, but accessing them is, uh, is a real problem. Well, the concern here, because when they made these announcements, and the, the, federal, uh, the provincial plan, as you mentioned, has been in place for some time, but it's the restrictions on it that are problematic here. Uh, this was characterized as, as help for communities that are trying to recover from this. Uh, I don't know of any community that's that kind of cash ready available that says, "Hey, I, yeah, we can throw ten million at this as long as we can get some federal money." So it's really it's there, but it's not there. That's right, and uh, you know, you take a look at at Hamilton. I mean, we've we've been somewhat lucky compared to Muskoka and, and Ottawa and some of these other communities that have, you know, had, had devastating flooding, but but we've had our share with uh, with the lake levels and. Um, you know, in in our case, uh, over the last thirty years, we've spent I don't know twenty twenty five million dollars creating a trail system, a waterfront trail system, and large chunks of that have been destroyed this year. Uh, you know, we're and and it's just sort of happened. And I don't see um, you know I don't see any external funds that that we would qualify for. 
Well, and, you know, the one that comes to mind is I was reading the story this morning was uh, the flooding through the Red Hill Valley a couple of years ago. And now, at that time, we just said, okay, that's the 100-year storm phenomena. But those things are happening not 100 years now. Every 100 years, they're happening about every other week uh, come the summer months. And, and that might have been the precursor, what we had there. And if you recall the debate they had with the province at that time, John, they thought they were going to qualify for this. And the province said, uh-uh, you guys are on your own, uh, which was somewhat problematic. And it sounds like that hasn't changed a whole lot. No, I, I think I think the issue here is that we really haven't uh, coordinated planning uh, in Canada the way they have in the United States. I mean, FEMA is their disaster relief agency, and it's it's much criticized because when a when a disaster hits, it's never possible to respond with the kind of speed that that people would want. But nonetheless, they they have a coordinated central body that that seems to be focused on that. It's not as clear in Canada. We, you know, we have these funds available, but we don't seem to have an agency that that sort of kicks into action. We, you know, we use the military and um, and and that sort of thing, but we don't seem to have the same level of, uh, if you will, uh, a structure uh, to to deal with the problem. Well, does that call for you know the fact that this seems to be the new normal now? Does this call for some some rejigging of how federal and provincial governments actually deal with this stuff? Because it's going to be continue to happen, obviously. Yeah, it, it, well, it certainly calls for that. But uh, then we have the other problem that um, you know, frankly, uh, uh, governments aren't very good at talking to each other anymore. Um, you know, we have uh, municipalities at war with the province. We have. Uh, you know the the federal depending on which provincial party is in place uh, certainly uh, the ford government and the trudeau government are not exactly on on buddy buddy terms so we we have this political polarization that i think uh, gets in the way of uh, the kind of cooperative uh, measures that would be needed to you know to have some kind of an effective response which uh, puts municipalities pretty much in the same boat, excuse the bad pun here, uh, that you and I would have, and that is dealing with insurance companies. I mean, they have to have insurance, obviously. Uh, and I'm sure the insurance industry is concerned about this, because if they have to start paying out some of these premiums, uh, it's going to be problematic for them. But it's going to be problematic for municipalities, too, because you know what's going to happen to the rates. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's inevitable that insurance rates are going to go up, because uh, we're we're just seeing you know the the size and the magnitude of uh of the damage that's being created right across uh, the province uh definitely insurance is going to go up if if indeed you can get insurance for some of these uh natural disasters people find out uh too late that their insurance policy they thought they were covered for all perils and then they they suddenly discover that certain kinds of flooding are not covered and certain kinds of sewer backups are not covered so there's a, there's a huge issue here that, that probably requires um, federal, provincial, and industry, and, and by that I mean insurance industry, uh, there probably needs to be a, a major sit-down and, and some, uh, you know, some policy and some measures developed because this problem clearly is getting worse all the time. Well, part of the problem with, with even trying to coordinate something like that is, as you say, first of all, there's a great deal of uh, antagonism between various levels of government, and, and a lot of that's personality-driven. It's not just politically driven. 
Uh, plus the fact that, uh, I mean, let's lay all our cards on the table. There are some people that hold office at all three levels of government that don't quite believe in climate change uh, and don't even think this is, the, this is the cause of what all this is going on for. So with, you know, with those two major stumbling blocks, it's going to be very difficult to develop a policy that's going to be beneficial here. Well, whether you believe in climate change or not, you you can't ignore the fact that the uh, you know if you if you don't want to use those words, that's fine. But we we certainly have a tremendous amount of flooding, uh, wind damage, uh, these kind of things that that are happening, and people are experiencing uh, loss of their homes and uh, uh, you know major destruction of their lives and. So uh, w- whatever semantics um, somebody politically may choose to use, we still need to deal with the problem that we're seeing in front of us, and that's increased natural uh, disasters. Well, and, and just on the topic of insurance rates, once again, you're, uh, you're right. I mean, if the flooding continues, I mean, I, I've got friends up in the Ottawa Valley that have been impacted by what's happened up there. We've talked to a number of folks as, as it was occurring there. Uh, and they're worried, obviously, about the damage that has to be done, but they're also worried about the next insurance bill that they're going to get, because if it's going to happen on a regular basis, as you say, sometimes insurance companies just say, you know what, we're not covering that anymore, which is going to force those people to lean on government. And government's basically saying, well, you guys don't qualify. Too bad, so sad. I mean, it's a, it's a rather precarious situation, and, and it's something that you'd like to think that the federal government, because they have to take the lead on this, are going to take this by the horns and say, let's we have to rejig what we've been doing here. Well, they will have to do it. The question is, and then we have the, the added issue that, of course, we have an election uh, coming up in, in a few months, and uh, this is the kind of issue that uh, uh, probably uh, any party would, would prefer not to deal with at this particular time. Um, you know they don't they they would rather you know disaster relief is is not a, a vote catching kind of promise they would rather promise uh, you know shiny object kind of spending programs rather than something that cleans up a mess so you know I'm I'm not optimistic uh, that that we're going to see much of anything until until after the election and. My sense is that this will probably be driven more by the insurance industry than anybody else because uh, they are uh, experiencing a, a tremendous amount of risk right now, and and it, I'm not sure that it reflects what's really going on with our with our natural phenomenon. So, but you know, it's 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 going to be difficult because if you live in a community that's not touched uh, by this, and that's still a large part of the province. Uh, it, it's hard to get your head around how serious a problem this is. You know, this is, I think, just another example of a greater problem that you, we've talked about in the past, and uh, and it's something that it's it's a federal government problem, and it's not unique to the to the liberal government because it, it's been going on for years and years. Here is we do all of these things on a, on an ad hoc basis, and because uh, I know, for instance, we've talked about the flooding, and you mentioned about the, the the waterfront trail that has been impacted. Yeah, we did get some federal money for that, but it was one time funding for that project. If it happens again next year in another section, uh, you know, there's there's no guarantee there's going to be any money for this. And you reference, for instance, how the United States handles this. Uh, they have a consistent fund. They have a department of the government, federal government, that is in charge of disaster relief, and it's fully funded. Uh, when New Orleans started to get flooded after what happened down there, uh, they didn't go to the city and say, okay, you pony up and then we'll come on there. They just they just show up and they get things done. Uh, we don't do that. We don't we don't fund things on a national basis for municipalities. We, as you say, hand out goodies every now and then. 
but there's no guarantee that it's going to be there next year. And, and it's it's causing a problem. Uh, and you talk to any mayor in the city, any mayor in the country for that matter, John, and they're going to tell you the exact same thing. And that's that's a mindset that the federal government's going to have to get around. Well, and, and I think it's because uh, we've been very fortunate in Canada. I mean, over the years, uh, all these hurricanes and tornadoes uh, that we've seen in the United States, uh, even, even the fires, I mean, we, we've certainly had our share of wildfires in, in western Canada. But th- the reality is that, that we don't get the year-in, year-out onslaught of tornadoes, flooding that the Americans get. Uh, I mean, right now, they, you know, you... you tune in uh, any of the three major newscasts, they're leading with weather stories increasingly. Uh, the, you know, the lead story is, is weather, and they've now got some method where they can calculate how many people are at risk, and you, and you keep seeing these stories where they're saying, well, there's, there's 55 million Americans are in danger of getting hit with the, the next uh, hurricane or tornado or flooding. Uh, it, it's just a perpetual situation there. Uh, here we've, you know, it's been spottier. Although this year we, I think we really got it in Ontario, especially in eastern Ontario. Um, so, you know, I think that's the reason why we don't have these mechanisms in place. But, but certainly, we can see these weather phenomena creeping our way. And uh, it, I think it would be good. Uh, I guess Ralph Goodale would be the closest to. Uh, having responsibilities, the public safety minister, I, I guess it would fall into his uh, category. And I guess if people were concerned about this, uh, that's probably where they should be directing their letters and calls right now. Exactly. And I understand that what governments probably want to do and what we're going to hear an awful lot of during this upcoming election campaign, John, is promises on how they're going to fix this. Uh, you know, it'll, you know, we're good. it's all about environmental stuff and, and, you know, trying to reduce greenhouse gases. And we all know what those debates are going to be like. But in their in their zeal to try to do what is really going to be a long term solution, uh, they tend to be forgetting that they need some short term uh, solutions in the meantime. Because until they reach that goal, we're still going to have these sorts of things, and they don't seem to take that into account. Well, and uh, taking it back to a local example, okay, we've had serious damage on on this trail system that we spent thirty years building. Um, do we just rebuild it? Uh, and and hope that the lake levels don't rise again. Uh, obviously, we you know if they're going to rebuild the trails, they probably have to look at some kind of dikes or uh, berms or something uh, as well. Otherwise, we could spend another twenty odd million rebuilding the trail system and have it all wiped out next spring. Well, absolutely. And again, that's that that lack of long term thinking and long term planning that seems to uh, just be a hallmark of of whatever we seem to get from federal government. Doesn't matter who's sitting in the corner office. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities is weighing in on this, too, and we'll see if they can exert some pressure, and that might even pop into the conversation during an election campaign. John, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When uh, groups like, well, the Arkells uh, were starting out, uh, they were the beneficiaries, as many other uh, musicians have been and artists have been for the years, uh, with a little bit of a boost from uh, from the provincial government uh, to kind of get them started, seed money. Cl- clearly, it was a great investment for the Arkells and and for so many other great acts as well. And and one of the platforms for them to to grow as as artists and as musicians are the music festivals that happen around the province of Ontario, for instance, every summer for the most part. Well, they all got some bad news over the weekend uh, that uh, the festivals such as Supercrawl, Festival of Friends here in Hamilton, and uh, Busking Fest in Dundas, among others, 
uh, have uh, are going to receive less money. In some cases, no money from some funding sources that had been there for quite some time. Uh, it's it's a kick in the pants, obviously, to the festival organizers this close to the festivals themselves. So what happens here, and how do they how do they roll with? It's not just a punch; it's really a a, a body blow, really, for many of these festivals. So I bring Lauren Lieberman into the conversation. Lauren, of course, is a former festival organizer uh, who has done this thing for many, many years. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time, Lauren. Great to have you back on the show today. Pleasure to, to be here discussing an important issue that uh, doesn't hurt me as much as it used to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, I, 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 let's characterize this for what it is. Governments are famous for doing this. When there's a bad news announcement, they do it Friday afternoon. Uh, and because nobody's paying much attention, the news cycle's pretty much set on this. Uh, but this is uh, this is a big deal, and this is going to have an impact on an awful lot of people this summer. Absolutely, it will. And before the announcement, uh, a lot of the damage was done, and it already was a big deal. I'm not sure how a festival organizer is supposed to uh, leave a giant gap in terms of their planning, um, depending on. Uh, the point I'm getting to, Bill, is the announcement came super late. Um, usually, Celebrate Ontario would would make its proclamation and let you know yes or no or how well you did in early March. Um, it, it doesn't do you any good when you've already planned anything. And hopefully, uh, those who did not get uh, did not plan to receive uh, what they're not receiving. On, on a typical year, though, Lauren, uh, back in the day when you were doing this, where would you be at this stage in June? I, I, you're never home and cooled out because you were always putting an ad on things, you know, always working it. But but you, you had the guts of it all set up and the main acts pretty much lined up by this time, wouldn't you? Not? Yeah, absolutely. And, Bill, in terms of um, how this directly ties in in terms of the planning to celebrate Ontario, so the grants are to promote Ontario tourism. And the best way to get people um, to be tourists in Hamilton for your music event, festival, or otherwise is to have the drawing power and the marketing effort to do so. So you're not going to be booking headliners a week before your festival. That kind of stuff would already be done. And, of course, there's lots of work to do in the final weeks, but the major stuff and the major expenditure usually is done by now. So so these guys that are organizing this year, Rikosi, of course, with the Festival of Friends and Tupata Sick for the Super Crawl, the two big ones here, yep. uh, uh, they, they've pretty much counted on this. In other words, and I know in the case of the festival, and I'm sure it was the same way with you, uh, even though you may not have heard from the province until March, you're pretty sure that you're going to get the same kind uh, of money year after year. Yes and no. Um, you might have... By the way, uh, if I'm opening up old wounds here, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of dollars spent on therapy to make this go away, but I'm, but I'm okay talking about it. Good. I, um, I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think that would have been wise planning. You can't spend money until you have it. And that leads to a very important aspect for these kind of events, which is multi-year guaranteed funding. If, in fact, um, Rikosi and Potisic spent money they didn't have, um, that would be a mistake on their part. And it is really important, Bill, that we know um, that Hamilton got the same haircut in terms of Celebrate Ontario provincial funding as every other municipality did. Um, the difference is for these events, their money went elsewhere. And a quarter million dollars of Celebrate Ontario money was uh, given to the two concerts, which were very successful, last weekend at the Canadian Open. Yeah. So that 250 with maybe, you know, 150 uh, going uh, uh, to Supercrawl, 
and 40 going to uh, a festival of friends and everybody taking a little bit less would have been an alternative. But I wonder where that recommendation came from. Well, that's I what... wonder whether economic development Hamilton preferred it that way. Nobody's talking. No, they're not. <laughs> but it's not fair to suggest that Hamilton got screwed. But, but to that point, though, and, and I know the ministers kind of do the song and dance, which they tend to do, because uh, as, as you say, Hamilton's not the only place that's being affected by this. The, the, the jazz festival up in Ottawa uh, that's very famous. I know f- people that drive up there on the weekend uh, every year for, for that festival. Mind you, I know people from Ottawa that come down for Festival of Friends every year, too. Fair enough, yeah. Because c- it's a reciprocal thing. But w- when this sort of thing happens, uh, and, and you have to ask yourself, well, what's the rationale for this? The government's reaction to this was, was rather strange, Lauren. They basically said, well, we want to get uh, a return on, on, on the investment. In other words, we want to make sure that the money, that, the seed money that yeah. we give these com- communities uh, is, is going to come back in, in the way of, well, increased revenue, et cetera, I guess larger crowds. Both the festivals we're talking about here have, <laughs> have done that in spades. So I don't understand why all of a sudden they've fallen with, uh, into disfavor with the province. Well, the province has been saying a multitude of things that counteract each other. I have uh, heard and read that the province no longer wants to be supporting through Celebrate Ontario um, ticketed events, that you should be sustainable. Well, that goes against the RBC Canadian Open shows this past weekend. Yeah. They don't want to be supportive of profitable shows. Even if you're a not-for-profit, why do you get government money if you don't technically need it? Um, but at the same time, they're talking about wanting to support tourism while putting an emphasis on fledgling events. It, it doesn't make sense, and I'm not sure that the government really had its messaging uh, put together before they uh, they did all this. Yeah, the minister says they want to focus on increasing tourism in the province of Ontario. Uh, the fact that you can't get a hotel room in Hamilton the weekend the Festival of Friends is on kind of indicates that your work it's working. I mean, it was doing that. I mean, that was increasing tourism, was it not? Certainly. Certainly. And I think it's very important that the criteria... Um, be established by the new government when you fill out a grant. What is it you're aiming for? And if they haven't figured that out yet, there's three more grant cycles with the conservative uh, Ford government um, that guys like uh, Rakosi and Potisic need to figure out. Is is this a double whammy? I mean, the, the announcement we're talking about here right now is the Celebrate Ontario uh, funding cuts. Uh, but this, I guess, is really a companion piece for the, uh, the the provincial government cutting funding of the Ontario Music Fund, uh, which they announced just a little while ago. Now, now is that something that is going to impact festivals, or is that individuals? Um, both, and okay. Ontario Arts Council funding, and on and on and on it goes. That That is the, uh, the landscape um, for the immediate future based on uh, the preferences of this government. And that's okay. It's not great, but it's okay as long as you know. It's about being able to plan and react to it. And therein lies the problem, uh, you know, the, to say, well, okay, you guys go ahead and plan for this. But how can you do that if you don't know where the money's coming from or if the money's coming at all? Right, but it is important to remember these are grants you apply for. These are not automatic streams of funding. Yeah. But to let you know um, how you're going to make out a matter of a few weeks before your event is, is entirely useless. It was Busking Fest um, this past weekend. Um, Sound of Music found out it got its money, um, and they had their uh, kickoff weekend this weekend as well. It makes no difference to get last-minute dough like that. You have to plan accordingly. So whose door do you knock on? What phone calls do you make? Do you try to make up the shortfall? Do you try to trim the roster? What, what, what are the options they've got here? I think there's there's two um, different areas that uh, to 
Tim and Rob should be doing, and certainly they don't need to take advice from me. They absolutely know what they're doing. Um, but number one is to look for other sources of revenue. There's still time to make up the difference, whether it be in sponsorship or, or other creative ways of doing so. And number two, starting now on a strategy um, whereby you can make this government aware of what it is that your event does for the community of Hamilton. And I think the city of Hamilton's active department's the first place to start because active did a hell of a job advocating for the Canadian Open. Why didn't they uh, do the same for the other events? Did it's, t- not, it's not fair, and it doesn't have to be fair, but there are decision makers um, outside of the province um, that certainly need to be... And, and well, Bill, let me put it this way. If, if ECDEV feels that uh, the money should have entirely gone to what it went to, they should have been kind enough um, to make that recommendation known to the Festival of Friends, Busking Fest, and Supercross. That, that would have been a nice thing to do. Have they taken it for granted? I mean, the, the, these festivals are successful year after year. The funding's probably going to be there. Uh, ho-hum, that's just, let's move on to something else, which in this of case course. was a one-time thing, which was the Canadian of Open. Of course. Um, what is good and successful is not necessarily uh, um, top of mind anymore. And one-offs and new stuff always take priority. And I guess Supercrawl, for the first time, is no longer the new kid who gets all the love. And it got it went from tiny funding to huge funding. Um, it's not supposed to get its knees cut off like this. In festival world, in government funding, it's called sunsetting. They plateau you, or they start uh, whittling away. And the city certainly ebbs and flows with that mentality uh, since the 1980s in terms of festival funding. But you're good, you're stable. Uh, we don't need to give you as much. But to go from 250 to zero, it, it's crazy. Well, because you you like to think that there's going to be some consistency. And, and I watched and I saw, and you t- talked about uh, the number of times you had to go before city council, and, and your predecessor, Bill Powell, had to do the exact same dance, really, uh, to try to make sure that there was going to be funding from the municipal level. And it was difficult and, and, and more than challenging some years. And, uh, you know, I, I'm understating it, but, I mean, that's the way it always was. But these these grant programs were put in place by the provincial government to try to ease the pressure on you. Uh, so now you're left with virtually nothing from the province. The city, I guess, is going to be asked to step up, and that's going to be difficult for them, which basically leaves private investment, in other words, corporate sponsorship. But uh, talk to us about how difficult that is these days to try to get somebody to sign on. It's really tough to get um, sponsorship when it sounds like uh, your event is a loser. And it's very important to know, Tim has already announced his lineup. Yeah. And so I assume he's uh, he's got a plan to be able to pay for it. I don't think we're talking that level of crisis at all. And I speak to Rob occasionally, and I've, I'm very aware of uh, his imminent uh, lineup announcement as well. So it's important to know that these events are not in imminent danger. They will uh, have their solid lineups and pray for good weather for uh, their 2019 offerings. But you can't go to... Uh, um, to corporations to attach their name to a sinking ship. That's not the way to do it. Well, and because you expressed the difficulty that you had in doing that in the past. Uh, first of all, you, know, you got criticized on both sides. First of all, uh, you've got to go out there and do it, and then when you did it, you got criticized by others right, saying that you were selling out. Of course. Of course. Yes. Um, sometimes you just can't win in Hamilton, but that's okay. 
Yeah, well, that's that's uh, a part of the character, I guess, when it comes to these sorts of things. Everybody's going to be a critic at some time or another. Sure. But you got to wonder what the long-term uh, impact this is going to be. To, I mean, Supercrawl is, a, for instance, you look at where they started and how they have expanded. I mean, just geographically how they've expanded mm-hmm. over the last number of years. Uh, is, is it time to, to you know, this is, <laughs> honey, I shrunk the festivals. That seems to be the mantra from Queen's Park these days. Well, it's um, it's going to be interesting to watch if the province can see that the Festival of Friends and Supercrawl have exemplary years, huge crowds, and wonderful lineups without provincial funding. That says something too. Sure does. But is that right. going to happen? Um, I know you don't want to be too successful either. You need you need partners and not subsidization. That's the difference in understanding here, and. Um, the festival organizers should not be taking a, a grant application for granted, but at the same time, festival organizers cannot make major um, budgetary decisions with uh, weeks to days remaining before they do so. There's a whole lot of blame to go around here. Lauren, what about that relationship between the festivals and, and the city itself? Uh, as you say, I don't necessarily mean the city's funding formula, but I'm talking about the city as an advocate for these festivals. Uh, is that as strong as it could be? I, I'm suggesting that it's, that it's not. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not at the table, but Tourism Ontario hears from the different regional tourism offices. And um, for different councillors uh, to be jumping up and down and saying this isn't fair, they're not looking at the big picture. If it was a 30% cut in funding across the province, Hamilton did pretty darn good. How it was allocated and why it was allocated that way, those are questions that City Hall and the festival organizers need answers to. And if, in fact, that uh, City Hall prefers uh, one-off events uh, um, being uh, covered off as opposed to your usual suspect events, well, then I guess next year when there's no Junos or Country Music Awards, we can have a good year. But then when there is, um, everybody uh, gets nothing again. And that's crazy. I don't understand that notion at all. But I also don't expect anybody from economic development to show the correspondence or come out and say, we picked A over B. But I guarantee you, to some extent, that's what has happened here. Well, and, and that's great to go for the one-offs. And it's great when the Junos are here or the Country Music Awards are here or, or anything else like this. And and the concert Friday night was well, very well attended, and obviously everybody had a blast. And that's great. Great band, and it was great to see them there. But... Uh, as you say, you can't do one-offs every year. Uh, at some point, you've got to talk about the local stuff that's going on here, the, the organic the stuff that's grown, like festival, like uh, like Busking Fest, and and like uh, what's happened with Supercrawl. Sure. Uh, and and if the city has changed, if economic development has changed their policy and says we're going to concentrate on the one-offs anymore, and you guys are kind of on your own, uh, they, they should talk about that. They should, that. That's something that we should know about instead of something that was just decided and acted upon. And, and certainly the, the festival organizers should be aware of that, too, if there has been a policy change. Transparency in the city's direction is key to all of this, as well as um, it's important that Rob and Tim and um, Tourism Hamilton and the rest of it sit down with the tourism minister, Donna Skelly and otherwise, and figure out what it is that we can be doing as a municipality, as uh, event organizers, for next year. 
because the first thing, if if I'm a corporation and and you know the organizer calls me and says, you know, we just got kind of a raw deal. We're looking for some corporate support. We'd love to get you on there. My first reaction is going to be, well, if the province just cut money back, why should I invest in it then? What's what's in it for me? Right. Um, bad news brings more bad news. Yeah, exactly. And success breeds success. But I I am a firm believer that Tim and Rob are in great shape. For this year. I don't think we need to worry about crappy festivals and underfunded this year. They are solid organizers. And uh, this far late in the uh, in the calendar, they've, they've got to have uh, their contingencies. There's no way um, either of them would make um, budgetary commitments to their lineup and overall ends of their uh, festival with an assumption that the provincial money was coming, um, or at least not a complete assumption. That's crazy. Well, it's especially always a risk. It's always a gamble. Especially as you say, if it, traditionally they found out by, by late March, and here we are into June, and they didn't know yet, they had they had to smell something was coming up. Absolutely, something was uh, going to be different this year. Yes. Well, we'll uh, get some reaction. I know both of them are pretty upset about this, but uh, obviously we'll see how this rolls out this year. And uh, yeah, that meeting of the minds uh, vis-a-vis festivals wouldn't be a bad idea, Lauren. Sure. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Be well, Bill. Take care. Lauren Lieberman, of course, former festival organizer. Been there, done that. And I think he got the T-shirt, but uh, did a great job for many, many years. And uh, Tim and Rob Ricosi, of course, Tim Potasik and Rob Ricosi are doing a great job with these festivals, too. But uh, you'd like to think that the province is going to be on side. Or is, as Lauren suggested, is there another scenario developing here where maybe there was a decision made that these one-off music festivals and concerts are where they want to go and they don't want to invest to the same degree that they did in some of those festivals. That would be an interesting policy change, wouldn't it? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, another day in court for the City of Toronto. Uh, the City of Toronto versus the province of Ontario. The uh, top court in the province is actually going to go through all the legalities of last year's intervention by Premier Doug Ford in the municipal election in Toronto, where he, remember, just arbitrarily said, council's too big and it's going to be this size. Uh, and they got to stay at one point, but uh, obviously they're going to get back in here. Uh, what are the chances? And, and you know, what was it legal? Was it illegal? Hopefully the court's going to add some clarity to this. Joining us to talk about uh, what might happen is Christo Avila, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at uh, the University of Toronto. Christo, great to have you on the show again. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. I, I, I'm surprised. I think a lot of people are saying, are they still fighting about this? I think they thought it was resolved. But obviously, this is a, this is something that's very, very contentious for the city of Toronto, uh, and the government, uh, the province, uh, seems to be standing their ground with their position. Yeah, no, certainly. I think a lot of people were confused because the basic timeline was, you know, the Ford government announced this shortly after after you know taking power. Obviously, they have a majority. Um, they they passed the, the the law. It was challenged in court. Uh, the the challenge was successful. The the city was successful in that challenge, but um, you know this they, it was appealed. And what happened was there was a stay. And so what happened that Doug Ford and his government was, were allowed to implement their new law pending a legal case. So they were essentially given the ability to do it this time, although the courts could override them, meaning that, say, in 2022, we would go back to the old model, or at the very least, the city would have to be consulted or what have you on any changes. But then again, Doug Ford has also indicated his willingness to use the notwithstanding clause, he didn't have to do so this time because the courts at least temporary cite, temporarily cited in his favor. So that's where we're at. In a sense, the court decision was pushed beyond the election, so now the legal case really starts in earnest. 
who's the onus on here? Is it on the province to prove what they did was legal and justifiable, or, or does the city have to actually? Uh, well, I, I guess you know, innocent until proven guilty. I get that it, it, when it comes to criminal trials, but in this situation here, I, I, I'm not sure who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Uh, the, the city is certainly the aggrieved party here. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I think I think in a sense. It's the the city is probably, and regardless of the the legality of it, I think the politics of it is that the city is probably on the hook for challenging this perception because the the legislation as written, I generally suggests that you know municipalities have very little rights in relation to provinces. That provinces have very strong abilities to override uh, municipal laws, override municipal governance. And, and, and for a variety of reasons, and this is one of them. And so on that basic term, the government probably did something that it was allowed to do. But the city will have to make a case that, you know, this was unfair or it violated democratic norms. And if they can make that argument, you might be able to find success within other segments of the charter. Saying that this was a, you know, a, an attack on local democracy is different than saying, you know, the government did something the city didn't like. Because in the latter case, the city really has no leg to stand on. But if democracy is being infringed upon, a court may consider that. But you raise a very germane point here, and that's the Municipal Act. Uh, And in general terms, I guess, uh, just about every community, Hamilton, Toronto, uh, Niagara Falls, whatever you want to mention, uh, exists at the behest of the province. I mean, they're the ones that grant the charter for the city of Hamilton over the city of Toronto. Uh, and and that seems to be the trump card here, isn't it? That the you know they can do whatever they want when they want. They could withdraw the charter, and they they could say the city of Hamilton doesn't exist anymore if they so desired. Uh, and I don't know that there's a whole lot to do about it. Is that is that the principle that's being challenged here? I don't know if that principle is being challenged because even though I think a lot of cities would like that principle to be challenged, I think that principle is very clear. The question here isn't so much, you know, does the province have the right to do things as it did. Because it does, but it's a question of, did it do so in a manner that was an affront uh, to democracy or that wasn't in line with the principles of the Charter and Rights and Freedoms in the country? And if, again, that's only the really leg they have to stand on. Because even things like that, that matter politically, that, that maybe don't matter constitutionally or legally, but matter politically, like the fact that this was done so quickly, and like the fact Doug Ford didn't have a mandate to do it, and like the fact that it's Toronto, but it's only Toronto, it's not even... You know, like Hamilton and Ottawa and other large cities are excluded. Small towns are obviously excluded. So the question is, like, why Toronto? And so all of those things matter politically, but here I think they can only really find success in, in, a, in, a, in an attempt to make this about, you know, the perversion of democratic norms. That's the only way. You know, the, re- the articles you read about it from legal experts have basically said that the, 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 the ball is in the, the province's court because the Municipal Act really does give them a lot of the, 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 the powers as a, as a, a given. But in their opening statements, both sides obviously are going to have to, you know, here's, here's why we're here, here's why we did what we did. Uh, the province's argument, in part, it's a one-line quote here, uh, Crystal, I'm sure you've seen it already, but for the, our listeners, says the act, meaning what they did here, is a meaningful proportionate measure to address the dysfunction caused by having too many counselors ungoverned by party discipline. A smaller council can operate more effectively as a deliberative body with a lower burden by a lower burden of city staff. Is the onus on the province because they've said that to prove dysfunction? I mean, that will be one of the tactics of the of the of the city. And if the city can make the case that it's not actually about dysfunction, 
then maybe that could bolster their fact to say it's actually not about dysfunction. This was an effort to interfere with democratic norms and principles. That could be their line. I think in a general sense, again, this goes to the fact that, you know, maybe the province shouldn't have given a reason. It gives their opponent something to attack. But I guess the, you know, that argument can be used. Now, I don't know if it's a fair argument. I don't know the data. I don't know if the government's done enough of an analysis to say that Toronto City Council was dysfunctional, yet every town and, and you know, regional and, and rural council is, is functional. I don't know if they've done that study. They were a very new government. I don't know if they've had time to do that analysis. But that is their argument. Uh, that argument being challenged, though, could make it. Like, again, uh, you can see the city saying, well, throughout this case, we've proven it's not about dysfunction. So what is it about? It's about the perversion of democratic norms uh, in our province, in our city. And that's why we're challenging it. Are they going to have to keep it on that level, though? In other words, talking about, well, obviously, elements of, of uh, municipal law. Uh, because you know one of the other arguments against this, and I don't know whether it's going to hold any water in court, is, is this was just revenge. Uh, you know, this does, this is Doug Ford that doesn't like Toronto Council, didn't like the way that they treated him, didn't like the way they treated his brother, and this was payback. Uh, and, and there may well be some element of truth to that, but can you argue that in, in a legal situation, a legal a forum like this? I mean, I don't know if that's going to carry a lot of water. Yeah. I think that, you know, on the, on the one hand, you know, Doug Ford is premier, and, and in a, a premier and a majority government is a very powerful person. But, you know, this is a, you know, this is a decision made, in a sense, by the province and by, uh, you know, the, 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 the province of Ontario, who happens to be led by a government headed up by Doug Ford. It's not strictly about that in a legal sense. And I think that, you know, that subtext of the conversation from the city side may come into play but I think that's more of a political question. And I think that's why on this issue, Doug Ford may well carry the day legally, constitutionally, where the courts ultimately say, that say, look, you know, you can think the way this was done is unfair or a little bit um, sketchy, but at the end of the day, it, it fits the constitutional parameters that are laid out. But politically, Doug Ford can be held to account. And if there is a sense, especially from Torontonians or from other municipalities that maybe fear this being done to them, um, they can hold him accountable at the ballot box, which is the best option. And, and that's one of the subplots of this whole thing, isn't it, Christo? Because uh, Ford has already announced that uh, he's putting just about every other, well, a number of different municipalities on notice that there will be a review of governance in, in some of these communities. And I know I've talked to the mayor of Burlington, for instance, and, and mayors in, in other parts, including Hamilton, for that matter, and, and they're a little concerned about what might come next. Uh, so th- there's a lot weighing on this decision, isn't there? To a certain degree, there is. On the, on the one hand, yeah, if Ford gets a victory here and, and, and you know, said that what he did was, was legal, again, regardless of what people think about it morally or politically, then that will give him, you know, a sort of precedent to do it again. But on the other hand, by him actually doing the process of holding a review and consulting things and doing things like that, that might actually make it so that it's legal anyway. And the problem with Toronto is he didn't do any of that. So he's announced that, okay, maybe I'm going to review Hamilton and Burlington and Brampton and Kingston and other, you know, of some of Ontario's larger cities. Uh, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to have consultations, and we're going to talk to citizens and experts and elected officials and staff and build a report about the local governance. And then the city can disagree, but that's much more of a process of due diligence and consultation. And I think that would be a lot harder to challenge both legally and politically than what was done in Toronto. And again, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the wild card here is that uh, if he gets an unfavorable decision, 
uh, he may well just invoke the notwithstanding clause and, and simply say, I'm going to do this anyway. And, and all of a sudden, then you've got a constitutional crisis. I mean, that brings the federal government in play here, and a lot of people are, are going to start jumping on this. And uh, so, I mean, he's he's really stirred a hornet's nest up here. Yeah, no, certainly. I think he's already kind of played his notwithstanding clause card, and now it would be almost tricky for him to not use it here because it's not as if, you know, he in his mind thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, play this card if I have no other option at the 11th hour. And he said he was going to do it, and then, the, you know, the court sided in his favor and gave him his stay. He should have kept quiet about that usage because it would give him more flexibility. Now, again, there's a situation where he loses at this court. Um, he might have to invoke the notwithstanding clause, and that could lead to a whole bunch of issues. Right, some people have called upon the federal government to use the power of dissolution, which hasn't been used in a very long time and would also cause you know, great legal and moral and political crises. So who knows? I mean, the notwithstanding clause isn't used very frequently, but it has been used in Canada before. And whether or not people think this is the right time to use it, you know, it would be something it could be used on. Well, isn't this akin, though, to killing a flea with a sledgehammer? I mean, to use something like the notwithstanding clause for something like a reduction in council size? Yeah, I, w- I, would, I would think so, yes. I mean, if you think, like, Quebec has used it to... You know, look at things like, you know, protecting language laws. Again, whether people disagree with that or not, you know, the protection and promotion of, of French-Canadian Quebecois culture is of paramount importance. That is something that you could see a government using, you know, exceptional legislation for. This really does seem to be uh, a bit of an overreach. And, I mean, it's really an interesting question because, again, it, it's, it, it is to a certain degree, you know, what are, what's going to happen with that? Will there even be arguments here, depending on if the courts find a certain section of the charter violated? Because the notwithstanding clause can be used pretty broadly, but it can't be used to erase certain rights. You can't use the notwithstanding clause to ban the right to vote, for instance. And so this is a perversion of democracy. As the courts say, the notwithstanding clause doesn't apply here. I'm not a legal expert, but the reality is there's a lot of potential trouble here for Ford. And as we've seen, um, you know, Kathleen Wynne exited politics exited leadership, very, very unpopular, and Doug Ford is already more unpopular than she is. And in part, I think it's because of decisions like this. Well, and again, could that be argued? I, I know, you know, you're not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, but here we are delving into the legalities of this whole thing, because they're very much, of course, intertwined here between the politics and, and the legal aspects to this. But uh, with your, you know, your idea, but what I, and mine as well, that that the notwithstanding clause probably isn't even applicable here. It's going to be awfully hard for him to justify that. But if he invokes it, does he even have to justify it? I mean, it depends because you have to kind of make the case for how you're applying it, what you're overriding. Because generally, what the courts you have to make the case that yes, we acknowledge in a sense that this the courts have decided that or that we recognize that this does you know, violate an aspect of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but nonetheless we are going to use our notwithstanding clause because we feel it's in the interest of our province. And the whole reason the notwithstanding clause is in there, whether you agree with it or not, is that it was a, it was a concession to those who felt that the, at the end of the day, the legislatures and the parliament needed to be sovereign, needed to be supreme. That's like this ancient British tradition. And so you needed something like that to mean that, like, you know, the courts can ultimately give their ruling but, you know, they, they can't, they're not the, the last voice in the land. But there are certain limitations to the notwithstanding clause. And, I mean, that's where the complications come in. So, you know, Doug Ford right now, I think, is really hoping the courts vindicate him. It won't stop the controversy. Because, again, a lot of people understand 
that he probably was allowed to do what he did, but they're still mad because of the way he did it and the fact that, again, regardless of the Constitution and the Municipal Act and what have you, people don't like the tampering in local democracy. Well, especially in the middle of an election campaign. I mean, that's that's another element to this whole thing that just adds to the intrigue. No, yeah, certainly the timing. And again, Doug Ford didn't run. Like, Doug Ford didn't have a, a platform, really. He had platform pieces. But Doug Ford didn't run on, you know, I'm going to change city councils. I'm going to go into cities without their approval, without notice, in the middle of an election, to fundamentally reshape how they elect their officials, you know, the riding, you know, the ward boundaries and things like that. He didn't have a mandate for that. And you add into the fact it's in the middle of an election, and you add into the fact that, you know, there is this history of a personal vendetta. This also ties into the canceling of the regional chairs, one of which was being sought by Ford's predecessor, you know, Patrick Brown. Yeah. You add in all of these, you know, things which, which don't necessarily have to be personal, but which people can reasonably think are personal. And this is where I think the politics of this all are perhaps more intriguing than the constitutionality of the constitutionality of it all. Because, again, regardless of the decision, Doug Ford is going to continue to face political blowback for moves like this and will continue to face it if he goes forward and, and does similar things in Brampton and in, in Hamilton and other communities like that. Boy, you can't make this stuff up. It's amazing. I will be following it, as I'm sure most people in other parts of the province will, too. Christo, thanks again for the time today. Thanks for having me. Christo of course, from the University of Toronto. Uh, and this is only one of the other court cases, uh, many that are involving the provincial government. I mean, we even talked about the, the, the carbon tax thing, which is also going to court right now, too. And that's, uh, that's going to be costly to the uh, people of Ontario. But anyway, I digress. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.